to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. video is produced by a group called the School of Life uh, and you heard the dulcet tones of Elaine de Baton uh, of uh, such uh, favourites as uh, Status Anxiety, uh, The Art of Travel, uh, books like that. Well thanks to Elaine de Baton at the School of Life, seeking and finding meaningful work is pretty straightforward. If we just take our time to find our authentic selves if we just remember to be our best selves at the checkout, and if large companies for whom we work told their world-saving stories better, we'd all find meaningful work. <clears throat> there is some wisdom in what we just saw in that short presentation. We will act more diligently and be more productive as workers if we can easily commit emotionally to the tasks that are set before us. We'll likely be more creative when faced with challenges and more determined to overcome them. If we participated in a global economy in a more thoughtful and self-controlled way, then there may well be less opportunity for exploitative people to lure us into spending money that we don't have on things we don't really need to impress people that we either don't really know or don't actually like. If the leadership in the large companies for whom most of us work was better able to tell us stories of the lasting benefits of the products and services we provide to the greater human population, such that our small but consistent contributions were caught up in definite, if gradual, movements towards a brighter future for all, then we might be less anxious as to whether, whether what we do each day from eight till six, six days a week out of seven, was worth the amount of lives we spend on it. In contrast, my aim tonight is to persuade you that all these things might be possible, but only if we as Christians take a very different approach to what we're seeking and more importantly, what we expect to find during <coughs> for the duration of our paid working lives. Over and against what at times might feel like overwhelming pressure to do otherwise, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ deserves that we seek his kingdom and the promises that we will find contentment in doing so. Now in an economic environment dominated by calls for perpetual growth and expansion, the concept of contentment is all too frequently redefined as settling for less, admitting defeat or just being a loser. Nevertheless, what we'll see tonight is that the promised hope of God's kingdom is the only means by which we'll find contentment, the contentment that we need in our workplaces, whether they're professional and career-orientated or occasionally and strictly out of necessity. Now, I'm going to structure tonight's lecture as a response to the ideas that were promoted uh, in the video we just saw. So you will see from your outline that I will pursue a gospel-based concept of seeking and finding in relation to the three points that Debaton's presentation makes. As we go through, I'll focus on a few main passages that I think might help us read the rest of the Bible for this topic. For each subheading, I'll start with one of these passages make some observations, draw some conclusions and then offer some suggestions for application. Now I'm aware that most people just want to know what to do as a Christian at work but we need to learn some theology first so that we know why we're doing what we believe will give the Lord Jesus the honour and glory that he so rightly deserves. So to help me out in that, uh, I'll call upon my beautiful assistant, uh, the Reverend Matt Aroni, and he's going to come and read us a Bible passage from time to time, the first one of which will be Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 10. So, seeking the kingdom and finding self-contentment, reading Ephesians 1, 1 to 10. Ephesians 1. Paul 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Seeking the kingdom and finding self-contentment. Debuton's video put before us the challenge of finding work that allows us to both discover and realise our deepest or most authentic self. It's a lovely sounding idea, but not especially new. Nearly 25 years ago, the Australian social researcher Hugh Mackay wrote this about work, and I quote, The best way to think about work is to regard it as occupational therapy. Of course, it's also a source of income, But the benefits of regular and satisfying work are far greater than the simple reward of the pay packet. People with a job are able to define their own identity in terms of their work. The rituals and routines of work create a structure which is a welcome contrast from the unpredictability of other departments of life. People with work are generally able to develop a sense of purpose and direction which gives meaning to their lives. So, work gives life a rhythm, a purpose that enables us to have some element of autonomy or freedom in a fleeting world of chances and changes. Now, Debaton's video doesn't dispute any of this. Rather, he suggests that what we need is help discovering our authentic working identities before we even start working. At one level, We could dismiss these observations as actual first world problems, since it's only those who live in relatively prosperous and peaceful countries who are afforded such a level of choice when it comes to achieving some level of economic livelihood. However, since all of us happen to fit into that category, that is, living in a first world, we need to look at God's word for guidance as to how to find self-contentment in our work. Now, in short, I'm going to suggest that it's only when we seek our authentic selves in the kingdom of Jesus the Christ that we'll find the contentment we need for any and every paid or unpaid work situation. In fact, it's only when we trust the gospel promises about our deepest selves that we will ever find contentment at all. So please uh, look with me, will you, at Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll make a few observations about the first few verses. The first observation for those who are taking notes regards God's will for our lives. God's will for our lives. The first important thing to observe about this passage is Paul's insight into the history of the universe as the span from before the foundations of the earth, in chapter 1, verse 4, to the exaltation of Christ Jesus as Lord in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. I don't think we could fit them all up on the whole screen. It's a pretty big picture. The promise is that God's saving actions in Jesus are rooted in his eternal purposes. That is, they stem from the inner life of the triune God. In this configuration, Paul draws our attention to at least three things concerning God's will for creation. His intention is discerned in the choice of his divine will or good pleasure in verse 5, the mystery of divine will in verse 9, and the plan of divine will 
in verse 11. So to understand the divine will and the, manage, uh, the man in which this might be perfected on the earth as it is in heaven, we need to understand God's plan for creation, the nature of his choice within that plan and the extent to which the divine choice reveals the mysterious character of God's heavenly will for the earth. The contribution of Ephesians 1 in all this is the fact that all three aspects of divine will come together in the person of the Lord Jesus. It's there in verse 10. The greatest mystery of the ages is that Messiah Jesus is the choice of God for the perfection of his plans and hence the perfection of his will on the earth as it is in heaven. So a conclusion that we might draw from this is that God's will for the universe and every living thing in it and every human being in particular is summed up in the Lord Jesus. But let me put it this way. If you've ever wondered what God's will is for your life or have said to yourself in a moment of uncertainty, I'm sure God has a plan, but then look closely at what the Bible says. Your life is part of God's plan to sum up the whole universe in the glorification of Jesus the Christ. Now, I'll say that again. Your life and all your lives, my life too, your life is part of God's plan to sum up the whole universe in the glorification of Jesus the Christ. To consider the purpose of your life to be encapsulated by some highly paid and dramatically influential professional career is not to seek far enough and to be contented with too little. The next thing to notice about this passage is that the self is a gift of salvation. The self is a gift of salvation. As I said, the next thing to notice about this passage is the blessings that God intends to give us through the Lord Jesus as the fulfilment of his will for the universe. In Jesus, we've been chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. In verse 4, through Jesus, God has adopted us as his children. In verse 5, through the sacrifice of Jesus' blood on our behalf, we've been granted forgiveness for our sins, in verse 7. In short, through Jesus Christ, God has favoured us with his grace such that we are to him what his son is, beloved, in verse 6. God thinks of us with the same love that he thinks of his son, Jesus the Christ. Now, the conclusion that we may draw from this is that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ contains a portrait for us of our deepest selves from the perspective of our creator. This is what God thinks about you. The God who intends to sum up all of human history in the glorified Jesus Christ wants us to be his children who from his perspective are holy and blameless immeasurably precious, considering that they've been purchased through the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and totally absolved of any and every failing, any and every shortcoming, and even any and every deliberate act of selfishness, greed, pride or idolatry. All of it. It's all gone. Here in the Gospel is the offer, a gift of a working identity that is so far above what we might ever seek by way of professional advancement, academic achievement or entrepreneurial dream as to render our aspirations as insulting to Jesus the Christ. There is simply nothing that compares to the riches of God's grace towards us in Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself spoke of how we should approach such an offer in the simplest of terms. I read to you from Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. 
Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went out and sold everything he had and bought it. The gift of our deepest selves that God offers us in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is worth more than any professional accolade, any academic prize, and certainly any corporate incentive, be it partnerships, share options or fellowships. More importantly, perhaps, the gift of our identity in Jesus Christ cannot be relativised by a performance review. Our worth to God as his children cannot be captured in a dissertation or a viva, and it refuses to be confined by any workplace contract. In fact, it's a suit of armour against the barbs and banter of workplace bullies. It's the testimony to our personhood when we're regarded merely as a human resource. And most of all, it's our ultimate source of freedom and vindication in the face of harassment, exploitation or retrenchment. The gift of our most authentic selves that comes in the gospel of Jesus the Christ has for our workplace been summarised in Martin Luther's famous phrase, we are free to work in Christ by faith and for our neighbours in love. This is what the Lord Jesus deserves. But of course our individual labours, whatever they may be, are part of a vast industrial complex commonly referred to as the global economy. This is the subject, broadly speaking, of Debaton's second point. So secondly, seeking the kingdom and finding economic contentment. We're going to read now from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So, seeking the kingdom and finding economic contentment. Now, along with the challenge of discovering our authentic working identities is the constant pressure of an economic system in which entrepreneurs can exploit our lack of self-command and our dangerously loose hold on what really brings us satisfaction long term. Those were uh, Deboton's uh, comments. In loose terms, what's being described here is the fact that free market capitalism, which is the dominant economic system of globalisation, can only achieve the growth in activity that results in ever-increasing profits if both demand and supply are ever-increasing. Basically, the more we consume, the more companies can produce, which means, theoretically, more jobs and greater wealth in wages and profits for everyone. The catch, of course, is that there's no point producing unless there's a demand. Otherwise, people won't buy products or make use of services. So, a key element of the modern capitalist economy is manufacturing demand or creating discontentment in order to justify filling these perceived needs or desires. If the global economy is driven by this kind of mechanism, says Debuton, then many, many people are going to end up doing jobs that produce goods and services which are, and I quote, craptastic. In reality, they're of little or no lasting value or benefit to anyone save the owners of the businesses who really should feel a lot more guilty than they do. At the risk of greatly oversimplifying modern economic theory, and my sincere apologies go out to any real economists in the room, 
I suggest that the inner and outer struggle for meaning and purpose for our society is the product of a basic struggle with which human beings have toiled since the fall of Adam and Eve. However, we can only find contentment in this situation when we seek the kingdom of Jesus the Christ at the resurrection of the dead. So we've seen, uh, Matt has read out to us 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Let's turn to that and I'll make some more observations. Observation number one, the future kingdom belongs to God's Christ. The future kingdom belongs to God's Christ. The first thing to observe in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the kingdom that we are seeking is a future event and is resolved between God and his Christ or anointed king, namely the risen Jesus of Nazareth. The kingdom of God will be on earth what it is in heaven when the Messiah hands over his rule to the Father, as Paul describes in verse 24, and all opposition to the reign of God is destroyed. At this point, all the powers in creation will give way to the one God's kingdom and it will therefore be all in all verse 28. Now the English theologian Tom Wright calls these verses a small apocalyptic account of the coming of God's kingdom, establishing God's rule over the world and defeating all the enemies of his kingdom, much like as recorded in Daniel 7, in which the human race was set in authority over beasts which envisage Yahweh's kingdom as a new creation. From the perspective of Paul's portrait in 1 Corinthians 15, the end is the summing up of all things in Christ that we saw in Ephesians 1. They kind of link together. We're looking at the same picture slightly differently now. When God acts to restore what was promised to and lost by Adam for humankind, he will do it as he sums up all things in Jesus the Christ. The struggle for the kingdom that we are seeking is resolved entirely by God for his beloved son in order to defeat his enemies. So the conclusion that we may draw from this is that despite the perennial desire of Christians to see their work in Christ by faith as in some way establishing the kingdom of God on the earth, the rule of God over the universe is the unique right of and gift given to the risen Lord Jesus. The kingdom of God belongs to God's king and to him alone and will only be present on the earth at his return, at the end, at the return of the king, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Now, I'll say more about this uh, in the next section, but for now, we need to observe the issue at root of every failed global economic system that humankind has struggled to establish. That root is sin and death. So, secondly, seeking the victory of God's kinsman redeemer. Seeking the victory of God's kinsman redeemer. Now, the next thing to observe about 1 Corinthians 15 is that, is that it relies on an observation made by the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, and that is we should think of the Old Testament as the past of the risen Christ. What that means is that this passage in 1 Corinthians is full of backstory that appears in the Old Testament but belongs to Jesus the Christ. Now, this is particularly useful when we try and make sense of verses 24 and 25 of chapter 15. Have a look at them there. See how Paul keeps using the pronoun he in relation to various actions of handing over, abolishing, reigning. Now, it's difficult to know which he Paul is referring to, whether it's God or his Christ. However, if we keep in mind the Old Testament portrait of the Christ of God as Israel's kinsman redeemer, the one who mediates the salvation of Yahweh to Israel, we can make some sense of what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, a kinsman redeemer is basically one of your own kind who will save you. One of your own kind who will save you. The identity of the kinsman redeemer first emerges at the end of the little book of Ruth in chapter 4. 
Here, Boaz, the hero, is identified as Ruth's redeemer, leading into a genealogy of King David. Now, that King David should be considered the kinsman redeemer of Israel is confirmed for us in 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 and 2. This is what the men of Judah say to David as he becomes king. The men of Judah say, We are your own flesh and blood. The Lord has said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. They're saying to him, You are our kinsman redeemer that God has appointed. Now, when we combine these images of the kinsman redeemer with Yahweh installing his chosen king in Psalm 110, and here the prophet, uh, the psalmist prophesies, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That appears at Pentecost and all throughout Hebrews to describe Jesus. If we combine the psalmist's words with the image of God's chosen king as the kinsman redeemer of Israel, then the establishment of God's kingdom that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 is about God's intervention through his Messiah against God's enemies. God's intervention through his Messiah against God's enemies. That's how the kingdom of God comes about. That's what Paul is describing in our passage. It's the way that God works through Jesus to destroy the enemies of God's people, the last of which Paul describes as death in verse 26. So here's a conclusion that we can draw from this. I know it sounds uh, a bit intense, but I'm trying to squash most of the Bible into a few verses. So, you know, it uh, may seem a little thick. The conclusion that we may draw from this is that our struggle with death has been resolved for us by God through the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. But the full significance of Christ's victory will not be revealed until the end that Paul describes in verse 24. Now this has relevance for us in our current global capitalist economy for two reasons. Firstly, Every effort at a global society and or economy from Alexander the Great through to Donald Trump is another chapter in the story of humankind's attempts to exercise dominion over the world. Now I mentioned uh, the Genesis account earlier and there in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the Lord God famously commands the man and the woman to have dominion and rule over the living creatures and the earth. Now, as you all know from Genesis 3, the man and the woman sought to fulfil this mandate their own way in rebellion against God. But they were cursed such that their efforts at multiplying and subduing the earth would be forever marred by pain and ultimately described as toil, with the ultimate defeat in death. Dominion becomes toil that's defeated by death. No matter how grand our plans for economic union or globalisation, no matter how advanced our science and medicine or refined our engineering and architecture, we cannot escape the distorting and debilitating effects of sin and death on our labours. Even our most noble ventures with our loftiest aspirations and our most beautiful designs, though we reach for the stars by ourselves, we will always arrive at the same destination. We die. We die, our parents died, and our children, should they arrive, will die too. Whole civilizations will suffer the fate of Ozymandias. Look on me and despair. Now the story of Babel in Genesis 12 is humankind coming together to make a name for themselves, only to be scattered over the earth by the Lord. Or as Solomon, as the Solomon voice concludes of all his grand efforts in Ecclesiastes 2, and remember, Solomon had it as good as anyone has had it in the Old Testament. When I considered all that I'd accomplished and what I'd laboured to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Since every great system of human dominion comes to the same end, 
The second aspect of significance for our work is revealed in the constant pressure we face to work purely for ourselves. We all die because we're all sinful. Our work in the world will inevitably be undermined by this rude fact. We will constantly fail ourselves, not just in our choices to consume, but in our motivations to produce. It's why we can't find our most authentic working identities, because our most consistent working identity will be marred, undermined, distorted and thwarted by simple but consistent selfishness. The fear of death and the desire for freedom in its shadow makes our communities into mobs, makes leaders into tyrants and turns workers into thieves. Amidst all this, we seek the kingdom of our kinsman redeemer, the risen Lord Jesus, because in him the promise of release from the tyranny of sin and death has been announced on Easter Sunday and a Pentecost. Or as Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 56, you can't see it here. Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the beginning of a general resurrection that Paul goes on to outline in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. Here the dead are raised to bodily life again in order that the Father might vindicate the glorified Christ as king and victor over all his enemies. This is God's promise of economic contentment for human society. When the true king, our kinsman redeemer, comes into his own, and God is all in all. It's a future hope in whose light we live, and so we turn to our last section, seeking the kingdom and finding hope. Matt's going to come and read from Philippians 2. Uh, Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, seeking the kingdom and finding hope. Now, the last factor that robs us of fulfilling work, according to Debaton, is the problem of being a tiny cog in a vast, slow, moving, multinational corporation whose products and or services take so long to touch the ground of everyday life that we simply lose the thread of what the real purpose of it all is. The solution is to get better at telling stories of what the business is up to. This will allegedly give multinational corporations the intimacy of a small B&B. Alternatively, I suggest that the hope we need to keep working well can only be found in the gospel story of the vindication of the crucified king. This hope can be embodied when we see our quest for truth, our love for goodness and our delight in beauty, not as the means of establishing God's kingdom for him, but rather as a testimony to that which is to come, as a protest against that which we see around us. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 to see the hope of vindication that brings glory to God the Father. So firstly, confessing the Lordship to vindicate Jesus. Confessing the Lordship to vindicate Jesus. In Philippians 2, 9-11, Paul foresees another scene of all creation being summed up in Jesus the Christ. In the end of 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four, Paul writes to the Philippians, All creatures are brought in worship before the ascended Christ, in order that he might be exalted as Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's like the third facet of our diamond. 
God the Father gives the name Lord, that is his alone. God gives this name to the exalted Christ in order that Messiah Jesus be acclaimed and proclaimed as Lord, as God the Son. In many ways, Paul is describing here what Peter preached at Pentecost. God made that man Jesus whom you crucified Lord and Messiah. But there's an addition here because this is what happens at the end. The addition is all creation is subjected to Messiah Jesus, acclaiming and proclaiming the centrality of Christ in God's saving actions. Various commentators on this passage have noticed Paul's use of Isaiah 45, 23 in Philippians 2. And the implication is that the Old Testament anticipated the dynamic of self-sacrifice and exaltation as an intrinsic aspect of God's plans for salvation that we see here in Philippians 2. So basically, the presence of God in the self-sacrificial acts of the Christ for salvation is attested in heaven and on earth and under the earth. When we get together at the end, when all things are summed up under Jesus, we'll say, God was in Jesus saving the world. Now what is explicit in the passage is that God the Father's design to exalt his Christ via all creatures throughout all creation being brought before the Messiah to worship him as Lord. Now while commenting on Philippians, the famous reformer John Calvin helpfully observes that Paul makes another appeal to Isaiah 45 in Romans chapter 14 verse 11. There Paul describes more specifically this event as the day of judgment. So the summing up of all things in Jesus, the end that Paul talks about, the exaltation of Jesus overall, is in fact the day of judgment. So whatever we might infer for and anticipate as the events of the last day, alluded to one in 1 Corinthians 15, They cannot be less than this, since the Revelation of John contains a similar portrait in Revelation 5.13. That is, everything being gathered around Jesus as the star. And insofar as Paul is echoing Peter's words from Pentecost, we might say that in Philippians, the portrait contains a graphic depiction of that Psalm 110 verse that I mentioned before. Philippians is what it looks like when the bowed knees and the confessing tongues of Christ's enemies are a footstool for his feet. Put another way, this picture of the glorification of Jesus in Philippians is what the general resurrection mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 looks like. The dead are raised to worship Jesus as Lord. That's what it means to sum up the whole of uh, universe's history. And here's the conclusion that we can draw from this. And that is, the primary mode in which we anticipate Christ's resurrection life for us now is on view here in Philippians. It is in our confession of Jesus' lordship. That's the most important thing for creatures to do once they're resurrected. But that's what we are all being drawn towards by the power of God's Spirit. A general resurrection where our most important task is to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not a very long job description really, is it? But what this means for us now is that we work in such a way as to worship the exalted king in anticipation of being gathered with the rest of creation into his presence for that purpose. In the spirit of Jesus Christ, we celebrate that future, as Paul told the Romans in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual worship. Our everyday work, whether it's professional and career-orientated or part-time and by pure necessity, 
can be done as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, as a spiritual act of worship. The first story of hope that we need to get good at telling in all our working activities and environments is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has triumphed over the powers of sin, death and evil that so consistently and persistently undermine our best working efforts in the world. At the same time, we can find hope that when we follow Paul's advice, when we follow Paul's advice to the Colossians, Let me read to you Paul's encouragement in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. What does it look like to work in the light of that coming hope? Paul says, Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. Now we've seen in Philippians that our everlasting reward is to be gathered in worship of the exalted Lord Jesus. But our everyday reward is the knowledge that God the Father sees our efforts and will vindicate us. God our Father sees when we sacrifice the aspirations of our culture, overshadowed by death, in the manner of Jesus who took on the form of a slave. God our Father sees when we continue to seek what is true, even when others are false. Our Heavenly Father sees when we continue to love what is good, even when others give in to evil. Our Heavenly Father sees when we determine to delight in what is beautiful, even when others submit to banality for the sake of selfish gain. And our efforts become a protest against a culture so dominated by sin. Our labours become a living testimony to the Lord Jesus who worked himself to death for our sake and our hope rests in the vindication of our glorious God and Father who raises the dead and will surely welcome us with the words. So the question is, how do we deal with ambition in the Christian life? Is it a positive or a negative? Thank you, that's a great question Uh, because it's easy to say that all Christians should be slackers uh, because the world is going to be destroyed anyway and so who really cares? I think that's why I finished by talking about uh, seeking what is true, loving what is good and delighting what is beautiful. That's our ambition Uh, and to lean towards that in our life is to lean towards what we expect Christ to bring to this world. And so whenever our ambition is for the true, the good and the beautiful that will be part of God's new creation, our lives actually become a protest against any other kind of ambition uh, and against the things that the people of this world will settle for the ambition of self, uh, the ambition of economic power uh, or the ambition of controlling the narrative, being able to proclaim someone else's on the wrong side of history or that sort of thing. The catch is that if we lean towards the future like Jesus the Christ, it's about a cruciform life of self-sacrifice for Christ's sake. So the challenge for us is, can you value what Jesus values? Can you be ambitious about that? So how is our work worship? And in what way does it actually look and taste different to the people around us? I think the, uh, the simplest uh, explanation of that comes from Paul in, uh, in Colossians 3, as I read. Let me read to you it again. Colossians 3, 22, uh, 23 and 24. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Our work has a higher object. In fact, not a, just an object, a person. And so Paul says, whatever you do, 
do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. Now, outwardly, people may not be able to tell. But that's what I said, God sees. And when we strive, when we live forwards towards the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus, eventually it will show because we'll sacrifice for Christ what others see as gain. We'll sacrifice for Christ what others see as reward. We'll sacrifice for Christ what others will see as power so that our worship will be like the worship of the Lord Jesus himself, the sacrifice that he offers up to God. I believe this is the classic millennial question, isn't it? <laughs> Should I keep changing jobs until I find the right fit and find the, the way I can best be using my time for the Lord's sake? Well, at, at one level, uh, the, uh, I think the Bible's answer is the last thing we want to hear. Because of the gift of self that comes through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, it doesn't actually matter what you do. Now, everything about our culture, about our parents' aspirations, about your education system, about your uh, corporate uh, business plans is the exact opposite, that you must create a self uh, which is marketable, which is desirable, uh, and which is therefore a commodity that you control. Luther, Luther's words were, we live by, we work in freedom, in faith in Christ uh, and in love for our neighbour. And I think what he was trying to capture there was because we're given the gift of an authentic self in relationship to God, we've actually been relieved from the most exacting standard that will ever be placed on our activities, paid or unpaid or any other kind. So we are free to enter into that, which, that work which, for a season, we may be able to use the skills that God has given us in order to serve others in love. Some of us will have more skills and more experience than others, and so there'll be more opportunities for us to serve in different places but that comes back to what we were saying before. Our ambition is for truth, goodness, and the beauty that's coming from Christ's kingdom. So it may mean that actually it's better just to stay put because we don't, we're freed from having to create a self. That's a gift that comes through Jesus. So is the true and beautiful things of our work, do they continue into the true and beautiful that is to come? Yeah. Uh, the short answer is no, they don't, uh, because the kingdom belongs entirely to the king. Uh, a number of times I mentioned tonight in those passages we looked at the inheritance of Christ. Now in uh, Ephesians, that's the church. The reward for Jesus' uh, faithfulness is he gets the church. The reward for the Messiah is that he gets the kingdom. And the reward for the Son of God is that he gets the universe. So when we live towards that which is true, when we love that which is good and when we delight in what is beautiful, it's in anticipation of what he's bringing. The very fact that we do it, though, that we say that there's something better coming is what enables us to, be, to protest against what we see around us in terms of falsehood, uh, of ugliness uh, and evil. So we're a living advertisement of everything that God is going to give to Jesus in his new creation. Um, how would you define calling and how would you see calling intersect with what you're saying about work? Uh, well, I think uh, one of the implications of what uh, we looked at in the first passage in Ephesians 1 is that um, the one place that God is calling us to, well, the one person 
that God is calling us to is to the Lordship of Jesus. Consistently throughout the New Testament, that's the only calling that God makes. He calls people to repent of their sins and believe in the Lordship of Jesus. Now, <clears throat> throughout uh, the Middle Ages in particular, uh, Christians distorted that calling or that idea of calling uh, and made it, because of the way that uh, people had approached uh, God's forgiveness. Uh, the short uh, version of uh, a thousand years uh, of medieval uh, Roman Catholicism is that your calling was the way that you gained merit before God. And so the more you dedicated yourself to that calling, the more merit you gained before God, so that when you stood before God on the day of judgment, you could present your, the good works of your calling towards God and hopefully win his favour. At that time, the grace of God was like a frequent flyers program. You know, if you make a few transactions, you get more frequent flyer points, okay? Well, Christians had let the grace of God devolved to a substance that the more good works you did, the more grace you got in your uh, grace, your frequent uh, servant's account, such that when you stood before God, he'd weigh up the good and the bad and you'd be accepted by him. Now, one of the great discoveries uh, of the Protestant Reformation that came through the work uh, of Martin Luther was to rediscover that God's calling was to trust in Jesus as Lord and to receive the forgiveness of sins. That's the calling that God makes to creation. God doesn't actually call people to do particular tasks or to even live in certain ways. God calls everyone only to Jesus the Christ. Now, one of the key passages uh, in this whole discussion is uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about uh, how you should live in light of your calling. And one of the key things that he uh, <clears throat> points out to people there is that you, as a Christian, you can stay in the, the state of life in which you were called. So if you were called as a married person that is called to Christ, stay there. You don't have to become divorced or you don't have to leave your spouse now that you've been called to Jesus Christ. Or if you've been called as a single person, it's okay. You can stay there too and serve the Lord as a single person. You don't have to get married in order to fulfil. Or if you're a slave or if you're a master, whatever your station is in which you were called, you can stay there. And in the light of what Luther had discovered about being justified by faith alone, he looked at 1 Corinthians 7 and said, ah, okay, there's actually no such thing as spiritual callings like monks or nuns or priests or all those sorts of things. We can be called in any station of life to the Lord Jesus and such that even the, the nursemaid and the baker uh, and the blacksmith can perform the spiritual worship uh, that I spoke about uh, in reference to Romans 12. Now, I might uh, point out that, uh, unfortunately, the concept of Christians being called overlaps a great deal with the Protestant work ethic. I've never met a Christian who felt called to be a sewerage treatment worker. But I've met plenty of high-paid professionals who felt called to be specialists, to be partners in a law firm, to be judges, to be financial planners, to be stockbrokers. I have to say I'm a little bit suspicious uh, about that view of calling. As soon as someone comes to me and says, I think that God has called me to serve the poor uh, and the homeless, then I'll have to take that seriously. Excellent. Um, so, David, if we're to work enthusiastically because our father sees what we do, how do we guard against overwork and putting too much energy into our work? How do we guard against overwork? 
I think in line with the things I was trying to suggest, lesson number one, you're not your job. You're a child of our Heavenly Father, made pure and blameless in His sight through the redemption of sins that comes through the death of Jesus. That's who we are. That's what Jesus has written on the label that will be revealed at the general resurrection. Uh, or as Matt pointed out for us, I think from the passage from uh, Revelation, we'll be given a white stone with a name on it that only God and we will know. That's who we are. Secondly, overwork never actually achieves anything. Because our world system, our world economy, what we're slogging our guts out for, will always or inevitably be undermined by sin, death or evil. So see, you're not your job. Understand the limits of our work. And three, lean towards the kingdom of Christ. The one thing that we can work ourselves to death over is the glorification of Jesus. He's quite okay with us dying in his service. In fact, that's what he said to his followers. Whoever would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. Now, sometimes, and Christians are the worst uh, when it comes to this, and particularly Christians in ministry, they'll equate busyness with godliness. After all, uh, most of us spend our time trying to puff ourselves up with some kind of work. And if you're in Christian ministry and you're relying basically on the giving of others uh, for your livelihood, it doesn't take very long before you find yourself working really hard to make everybody see how busy you are so that you're at least worth all the money that they're putting in the plate. Well, that's actually more about you than it is about the Lord Jesus. Um, in relation to us working as a um, response to God working for us, in his faithful work for us, we then work as a response and a testimony to his faithful work. Um, what are your thoughts on us working, whether overworking or working at all, just in terms of reflecting his faithful work for us? Uh, I think the first thing to that uh, I would say is have the same kind of definition of work that God does. Uh, and that is, wherever you have relationships, you have work. Serving others in relationships is our work. That's incredibly empowering, actually, because it means you don't need to be paid in order to have good work to do. You don't need to do it full-time in order to have good work to do. You could be part-time. Paid work is not the sign of our value to God and so therefore it ought not to be the sign of others' value to us. But in short, wherever we have relationships, we have an opportunity to live in our neighbour in love, uh, as Luther says, and live in Christ by faith. And where we serve our relationships that way, whether they're paid or otherwise, then we're actually reflecting the faithful way uh, that God acts towards us. Our oh, Father, what love that you have lavished on us. That we should be called children. That we should receive the favour that the Lord Jesus has. That you would take from us the death that robs us of meaning and that you would make us a part of that gathering on the final day where we worship you. Father, we pray that the gospel would speak to our deepest self, that we would find rest in your love. And Lord, that our hands would rise up, not for ourselves, not for anything in this world, but as a protest and as a longing for your kingdom. And so, Father, send us out in the power of your Spirit to work and to lean toward the future of your Son. And 
that we might bring much glory to him now and then be welcomed into his presence. It's in his name we pray. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.